Welcome to the Women's Mentoring Network of Canada, a podcast about ex-cadet women mentoring and building community together. I'm your host, Amanda Calhouse, a graduate of the Royal Military College of Canada, class of 1994 in electrical engineering. All right. Welcome, Sandra. How are you today? Great. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. Uh, first, I want to say thank you for uh, being willing to, to join us as one of our launch guests on the Women's Mentoring of Canada uh, podcast. Nope. Well, Women's thank you very Mentoring. Much for... <laughs> I can't even say my own name right. Women's Mentoring Network of Canada podcast. I'll get better at that. <laughs> thank you very much for uh, considering me as one of your eligible um, graduates. Uh, much appreciated. So, um, so maybe let's start with that. Um, you attended RMC in Kingston, uh, and when did when did you attend? I uh, was in the class of '86, uh, so we um, basically went through the gates in 1982, um, and uh, graduated four years later. Awesome. And while you were there, you studied honors economics and commerce. Is that right? That That's correct. Yes. We were the first class that actually offered an arts degree right from uh, the first year. Um, and I knew right from the beginning I wanted to study economics and commerce. Um, so I was one of the fortunate people that um, didn't have to actually start in engineering and then transfer over. Um, so I was quite fortunate. Oh, awesome. And how was it that you decided to go to RMC in the first place? What what sort of was your driving factor? Well, that's probably not a story that's overly patriotic. Um, <laughs> but I was growing up in uh, northern Ontario, uh, a small mining town outside of Sudbury. And it was about minus 40 with the winds blowing. Um, I was attending um, high school in Sudbury. And I had to take my bus back after a basketball practice and I missed the 515 bus. Uh, unfortunately, there's nothing open um, after 530. The only thing that was open was the recruiting center. And so um, just to basically survive, I went in and made great conversation with the recruiters. <laughs> and they told me they were gonna pay my way to go to university. And all I had to do was study for four years. And I'm one of six kids riding a bus, working all kinds of hours, trying to figure out how I'm going to get to university. And I basically looked at them and said, where do I sign? Right. That, yeah. What a, what a fortuitous story, right? Like in many was, ways, right? Yes, very much so. It was, uh, and now, of course, I've loved every minute of it. And I, I've since learned that I have a you know, very strong family heritage of military service but my parents weren't involved um, in the military at all so I had no day-to-day -day exposure to any military environment. That's so interesting it it, it really uh, it really is interesting to to listen to all the different stories of the different women that have attended RMC and sort of understand their background and you know what drew them there in the first place and I've heard a lot of different answers already so um, it's uh, it, it's always interesting and never all never exactly what you might expect. <laughs> no, that's for sure. <laughs> when so, you consider that I'm into my what uh, I've served over 38 years into my 39th year, 
And it all came because I missed that darn bus exactly. on that very, very cold night. <laughs> I, I would say that, uh, that in fact, the, uh, the Department of National Fen- Defense is the ones that were, uh, were lucky that you happened to miss your bus that <laughs> night, if you've served that long. <laughs> there you go. There you go. It's awesome. actually no surprise that a lot of the longer serving military members and a lot of the um, recruits come from small towns. Um, yeah, that's that's true. I was uh, I was speaking with uh, uh, Carla Harding, Brigadier General Carla Harding, uh, a couple of days ago, and a similar story. You know, small town Saskatchewan, and um, is still serving thirty years later. So yeah, definitely, uh, definitely some, uh, some, some different, uh, experiences though. Yeah. Um, what about, um, so can you, maybe we'll, we'll come back to it, but can you give us uh, a little bit of an overview of that 38 plus year career and, you know, maybe some of the highlights, uh, of your time in uniform? Wow. Well, that's, it's a long time. And I often uh, tell people when I try to summarize, I kind of, you you kind of live in five year spurts. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, obviously, I went to the military college, I specialized in um, playing as many sports as was conceivable at that time. Um, And there were so few women, I I think I played on almost every um, varsity team that existed at the time. Um, So that was wonderful. I graduated. um, I I had already trained as a logistics officer. In those days, there were few occupations that provided a full uh, career to women. Uh, Logistics was one of them. um, And we did our training during our summers uh, as we attended the military college. And so as soon as we finished our fourth year, we were able to get a posting. And so uh, another interesting fact, which probably uh, most people won't know, is that um, I grew up in a town which was known for uh, practicing the lunar uh, launch on the uh, moon, uh, being that there were no trees. Um, Basically, it was a little mining town outside of Sudbury. um, And basically, the the smelter there had decimated all of the vegetation. And I had heard a story from my brother who had gone to Vancouver area in British Columbia that in BC they had trees, trees (laughs) that were so big. Um, And that was one of the motivations afterwards when they told me I would have to do my basic training in Chilliwack, British Columbia. I thought, well, what could possibly go wrong? I get my full basic training. I get a trip to Vancouver, BC. I get to do like, they told me it would be like summer camp. Um, (laughs) And uh, I could do that. And I get that opportunity to see these massive trees. Um, And so it was kind of like this folklore when you're coming from a really um, small town. Um, But I got my orders and I was going to Borden. Um, so I wanted desperately to get a posting to Chilliwack because that's why I had signed up. Uh, <laughs> it was one of the reasons because I was going to get that trip to BC. So, um, true to form, the military did deliver though. And I got my first posting to Chilliwack, British Columbia, which at the time was a training base under the training systems. So I served there for three years as a logistics officer, um, doing a number of very, very interesting jobs. And at the time, um, it was a very pivotal um, supply organization because we basically supported the entire mainland as well Mm -hmm. as the base and all of the training units. 
because the CFOX, um, which is your officer um, training course, was held out of um, Chilliwack in those days. And of course, it was also the home of the engineers. Right. So I followed up there, went to Ottawa for three years where I worked in procurement, supply chain management, um, and continued to work in the uh, supply field uh, with a lot of finance moved in. Um, and that's when you're supposed to get that other posting um, where you could probably really spread your wings. Um, and uh, in order to get a co-located posting, I agreed to take on the base coordinator of official languages in Shearwater. Um, and there were so many people fighting for that job, particularly when you were streamlining your career. Um, <laughs> long story short, uh, it was very short-lived. Um, by the time I got there, I was moved into a staff officer role, and then I became the officer commanding the, the language training center. So I took the lemons um, and turned it into great tasting lemonade, um, and, and, and life was, was great. Um, I actually ended up with a great posting there. Um, but then I realized that I had done all of the, the things in the short term to, that I wanted to do, and I started contemplating going to law school. And that was at the time when they had the uh, forces reduction program. So, right. you know, you're, there were a lot of people doing a lot of soul searching as to what you really wanted to do. Do you want to stick around? Do you want to get out? You can get a pension, a golden handshake. Um, and I started thinking about that. Um, I shared it with my boss who was telling me, well, that's just ridiculous. Why don't you just apply through the military legal training program? Mm -hmm. And I said, well, that would be ideal, but we're in downsizing. He said, we're not for lawyers. We're not. We're upsizing in those. Wow. So I, I applied and I got accepted. I, um, uh, I had two babies. I only applied to, to one law school. That was Dalhousie. And fortunately I was accepted and, uh, every summer I worked in, in Halifax, um, supporting all of the various, uh, the legal issues and exercises that were ongoing. Um, and yeah, and, Three and a half, four years later, I popped out and I was a lawyer with wow. all kinds of supply experience. Yes. Yeah. So, and from there, I went to Ottawa. I worked in all the areas of law, um, enjoyed two operational tours, one of them to Bosnia as the legal advisor for the um, commander of the S-4 in Sarajevo. Um, and I also did um, a tour on board ships with some of the first groups of ships. I think we had close to five at various times in the Gulf after 9-11 right. for Operation Apollo. And I was there as the one lawyer supporting it all. And uh, we were also, I was also um, in Camp Mirage and doing some support into Afghanistan. And that would have been in 2001, I guess. Uh, 2002, sorry. Right. 2002. And then uh, a, little, a few years later, things were getting very hectic with my very high achieving children. Um, playing all kinds of sports, etc. And I was offered a great job opportunity to move into uh, the entertainment world. Um, so I thought, hey, you know, this is Canada. Nobody goes unemployed here. We got to take chances. So I took a leap of faith. I retired and switched to the reserve forces. And um, I went into the entertainment industry. So and worked there for almost four years. Um, but as a reservist, I was very well connected to the uh, office of the Judge Advocate General. And um, eventually, I uh, 
it was a very sad turn of events. Uh, my mother was diagnosed with terminal um, brain cancer at the same t- brain cancer and lung cancer at the same time that the forces had an urgent need for a lawyer with operational experience to join them back at the national defense headquarters. And they asked me and I said, well, actually, you know what? I would consider it. So I went back um, to help out for six, seven months while my kids were away uh, playing hockey and uh, uh, at school. And, um, and then I realized when I got back, I had been asked to interview uh, with the Toronto Maple Leafs, the Maple Leaf Entertainment oh, wow. Organization, um, which is like the premier entertainment position that somebody could apply for. And when I went for the interview, they were wonderful. Um, I think they were just a bit fascinated because when I submitted my resume, I also, this is kind of just a little bit of my dry sense of humor, I also submitted um, one of those little Labatt Stanley Cup and with it was a ransom note telling them that if they ever wanted to see this again, they should interview me. So out of curiosity. <laughs> That's awesome. So out of curiosity, with my military background, they said there's, they went through, I think they got some like a thousand applications, but I got the interview. But what's so fortuitous about this interview, when I went to have this interview, they were so fascinated by what I had done in the military I had been to the the international criminal trial uh, criminal um, trial um, tribunals. Sorry for um, Yugoslavia. I had supported right. the one in Rwanda. I had, was doing all the international litigation. I was doing international agreements. I had been at that point to all these various places um, that they could only dream of, and they said, "Like our, what we do is just boring." And and it, de- it when once they explained to me what the job was, it was extremely boring. And then I realized that what I was doing was absolutely invigorating for most people. Um, and, you know, and I looked at it as well from a very uh, pragmatic perspective. I could always go back to doing civilian law and civilian, um, you know, entertainment, etc. afterwards. But that was a moment in time in which history was being made with respect to the law, international law and Canada's presence on the international um, scene. So for me, that was really important. And I I, I was very, uh, very motivated and inspired by all of the legal issues that the lawyers were having to deal with. Um, So then they asked me if I would come back full time again. And I did. Wow. Yeah. So, um, so that was how that was my little, um, little detour. Yeah. Um, and, and my mom died within the year in which I was, um, back in Ottawa, um, working and she was in Ottawa as well. Oh, okay. Um, and then unfortunately my dad, uh, got sick and died about four months later. So oh, it was, uh, it, it was quite a, it was quite a tough year, but, yeah. um, I, I took a lot of comfort from the fact that I could be in that location and, uh, I had confidence in the work I was doing. Right. The where were you living prior to that? Was that were you out in BC or were you? In, no, in no. Toronto? At that t- at that time when I went uh, switched over and I was working in the animation industry, it was up in Northern Ontario in Sudbury. Oh, and really? So we we oh. had moved back up there, um, and so for me it was home to right. some extent. Um, and my parents unfortunately had moved to Ottawa, but they were in Ottawa. 
Um, but um, it was just, I mean, it was a wonderful opportunity because we were able to build something pretty well from the ground up and to um, bring to basically an animated story right from the internet to uh, animation on television, and it was broadcast on CBC. And that doesn't happen very often. In fact, I think it was the first where it was the reverse. Normally, in those years, because the flash animation was so basic, everything went from television, and then they had a a, they engineered a spot on the on the uh, internet. Whereas this was an internet sensation that went to television. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So a a uh, quite a diverse uh, set of. of work locations, I'll say. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yes, 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 absolutely. You know, nothing's ever been boring in my life. Well, and and you and I talked a little bit before this, and uh, I think one of the things we talked about is uh, uh, not doing things the easy way. <laughs> so Yeah, why follow the path that's traveled? You have to, you know, basically take your own. And I think that probably embodies a little bit of who I am because I kind of just follow my own path. And, uh, you know, it's not necessarily sure if I would have stayed in the logistics branch. Maybe I'd be a general today. Maybe I wouldn't be. Maybe I would be retired, you know. But I always went with what I wanted to achieve. Um, that gave me that personal gratification. And, and, and keep in mind that I came in at a time when many doors were closed and then some were opened. Um, and so um, the paths that exist, existed even five years afterwards were completely different from those paths that existed at the time I went through. Um, I made a lot of choices based on my kids. Um, in fact, I would suggest that probably most of my major career decisions were all, um, made, uh, in order to accommodate, um, being a mother at the same time. Right. It's very different today than it is now. I mean, my one son is 30 years old. So if you go back 30 years in the military, um, you know, the attitude was there that if, you know, you were intended to have kids, you would have been issued them. Um, you know, that would have been the year I joined. So, so yeah, so they were, it was very different. And so you make choices and you take why, you know, when there's a why in the road, you take a a left, maybe when you could have taken a right. Um, But it is what it is. So, so let's talk about that a little bit about some of the the choices that, that you did make or um, those directions you went in. Um, You've mentioned to me, um, I'll say off, uh, off the record, <laughs> we'll put it on the record now, um, about being a lost group um, and that, you know, coming into the military when you did sort of in that third class um, with women, um, we were talking about mentorship and having female mentorship, you know, sort of ahead of you. And so... Um, how how did that go for you? Well, I mean, I, I think that there's always opportunities that present itself. And, you know, what might be disguised as something bad might have opened up a positive route in another way. So, so I don't want this to sound negative. Um, but there weren't a lot of women that had children that were managing uh, military career deployments and raising kids. 
and in fact it was considered even in society as to be to be somewhat inconsistent and I remember when I deployed to go to Bosnia some of the mothers on my kids hockey team thought I was some sort of a crazy mother how would I ever leave my kids behind um, and so you're surrounded by that as well as the fact that you don't necessarily have female role models ahead of you who can kind of explain, mentor, and really um, give you an opportunity to speak to uh, about the types of challenges that you're being fa- that you're facing. Um, so in fact, you know, a- another very little um, known fact, which is kind of ironic today, because there are so many women in the legal branch, um, but, uh, and of course, in the logistics branch, there were a lot of uh, my uh, peers that were having families and uh, combining their uh, military careers with it. Um, and it didn't seem to be as big of a deal. But when I first joined the Office of the Judge Advocate General as a lawyer, I was told by one uh, senior ranked female that there had never been a female in the branch that had survived and had a, and managed a career. Um, which seems so hilarious now because all of the women have managed it very successfully. And I think the branch is actually over 50% women now um, who have all managed it. And the dads have taken paternity leave. Um, but at the time we came through, I mean, I mean we're talking over 30 years ago, right. um, when you had very, very short maternity leave. Um, you really didn't have those support mechanisms that you would have hoped that, that exist today. Right. Um, so I think we're, we're, we as a society are very fortunate now. Um, and then the women ahead of us, um, most of them, like I said, that were attained um, higher ranks, um, they, they were being told the same thing, um, that you know, raising a family and rising in the military ranks was incompatible. Right. Um, and so it's very, very happy and inspiring to see today that people are able to manage uh, that balance. And uh, we have, I mean, a great example is Jenny Kerrigan, who uh, actually, I think she's Major General uh, Kerrigan, um, who was just most recently in Afghanistan. And um, between her and her husband, they've raised four kids very successfully, and she's managed a career. Uh, I mean, she's done absolutely amazing. And so the difference of just five to 10 years is huge. Right. Excellent. So in terms of, um, you know, so it it sounds like there wasn't necessarily a lot of mentorship that you were able to get, you know, as you were rising uh, or going through your career. Um, You know, have you sort of turned that around, um, you know, for others? And has there been opportunities for you to provide mentorship? Well, I take it as a personal mission. It's my tasking in life, uh, particularly uh, now, um, to uh, reach out. Um, I have been involved in a mentoring program with the Canadian Bar Association uh, with a mentee in uh, Vancouver, um, who we still meet quite regularly. It was a one-year sponsorship. Um, But I also look to be able to mentor people that are outside of my um, immediate area Uh, and because of my role as a judge I can't really take a lawyer now uh, (laughs) under my wing because that that would be perceived as favoring one versus another 
Um, but but I, I guess the first thing I would say is that um, when I was a, a judge advocate general, um, what they call them assistant judge advocate general um, for central region, uh, which is the province of Ontario, I was very fortunate to have 11 regular force lawyers and another 11 uh, reserve force lawyers that were working for me that were all very junior. Many of them had less than five years of experience. And that was probably the opportunity to be able to reach out, watch them grow, give them enough guidance, let them develop it. And it was really hard because I actually had to hold back. And, you know, <laughs> you, 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 you want to jump in and tell them what the answer is and how to do it, but you kind of have to hold back and let, because it's their moment. It's their opportunity to shine and evolve. Um, so so I, that was a job that I absolutely loved and, and that kind of um, really instilled that whole mentoring. And since that time, I've reached out to other people, like there's female runners, people in other um, situations, um, and I'm not going to mention any specific names, but where we've sponsored them, uh, we have um, reached out to really uh, provide that encouragement because I recognize that they are a one of. And anytime right. you see these people in a one of situation, they don't necessarily have that that those mentoring programs developed um, because they just don't exist. The right. same as, you know, when I entered um, in various areas and you start raising your kids, you're a one of. Um, but now everybody has it. If you don't have kids, you're you're you're, you're left out, um, which is a, a fabulous sign. And it's a real indicator of success. So, yeah, I've been very, very active um, reaching out um, to people that are going through school. Um, most of the mentoring I'm doing now is on the outside of the Canadian Forces. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I have spoken on a number of occasions to women and I continue to um, reach out when I can um, in a way that I don't um, indicate any level of bias, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, that, that that must be challenging in your role, right? So you you have to be particularly uh, careful uh, about the perception of bias. Um, um, exactly. It it raises an interesting point. So, um, you know, I was just uh, talking to another uh, fellow ex cadet about um, you know seeing some changes over over the past you know at least the past decade in in sort of that notion of unconscious bias and it you know maybe sort of coming to the surface so I was curious um from your perspective you know uh, you know with such a um such a career that you've had what sort of changes have you noticed over that time as it relates to sort of women in leadership roles and 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 how that is uh perceived and 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 how you know how it has been for you well, I think that there has been a definite change. Um, there is absolutely no doubt about it. Um, but I actually credit the millennials and the younger generation for helping to force that change too. Yeah. Um, because they have always worked uh, with their um, female colleagues as counterparts. Um, and in many cases, when the men are joining uh, quite young, um, I hate to say it, but the females are the superstars and the guys are kind of just, you know, um, and, and that, that sounds a little bit judgmental. And I, I apologize. I'm not trying in any way to, 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 to cast any dis uh, uh, dispersions or aspersions or whatever it would uh, be referred to. But quite often, um, the way women and men will develop, um, they often, um, 
you know, women tend to be very high achievers in those, you know, from 18 to 22. Um, and so I think the, the young mm. men have grown up appreciating that. I mean, the acceptance rate of women into university is extremely high. They have, uh, many of them have mothers that have worked. They have female bosses as they've gone through. Um, so I think you've got a very fertile group of people that are joining, that are accepting the fact that, you know, that, that the, the world is a little bit bigger than what they saw maybe at home. Um, and so they're open to it. Um, but I think that the institution itself has changed and um, people might not want to hear it, but it may have even actually evolved more so than what you see on the civilian side. Um, and I've had the opportunity of going on, uh, on both sides, but um, I, I have to give credit to the Canadian Forces leadership because they have um, engineered a way in which they can kind of um, dismantle some of those preconceived ideas. Um, they're gradually improving ways in which unconscious bias continues to rest. And the problem with unconscious bias is people can't identify it. I know, you know I know, I, it's the irony. You know, <laughs> yeah, they, they can't identify it. And, and I remember as a perfect example, and this was way back, I mean, we're talking, you know, 25, 20, almost 30 years ago, when all of the operational meetings had to be at seven o'clock in the morning. Well, if you had, and, and that's making no mistake, as, as evolved as our husbands and that have been, if you were still the person taking your kids to daycare, whether you be a man or a woman and you have to drop them off, daycares don't open until seven o'clock. Right. And you could be completely committed with uh, an appropriate um, uh, childcare routine in the event that you have to deploy, but you can't be at a seven o'clock meeting. So couples were always having to find ways to juggle. And if for whatever reason you had a husband at sea and I had to be at a seven o'clock meeting, well, you know, you're, it's almost like mission impossible. Well, right. in many cases, there's absolutely no reason why it has to be at seven in the morning. <laughs> it's because that was conceived in a time in which, you know, people went to work early and nobody had daycare responsibilities. Nobody had to drop people off. at. Right. Um, and it's interesting because when you do switch, and, and, and I had the opportunity to work on the uh, civilian side on a number of occasions, and they don't start a meeting before nine o'clock for all those reasons, because <laughs> people have responsibilities. And it could be just that you're training for a triathlon and you do your training in the morning. Um, but they don't, unless it's urgent or it's some right. sort of a, uh, an important meeting, you don't need to start meetings at seven o'clock. And, you know, so, so just something as simple as that is a perfect indicator. When you start to explain it to them, um, you get an, uh, an automatic uh, pushback because that's the way it's always been done. Um, but when you start to peel back the layers of the onion, you start to realize, well, yeah, but, you know, it's based on perhaps, you know, the man's view of how it works when you had um, many cases, you know, they had wives staying at home or right. they didn't have a significant other. And you don't want to suggest any sort of paradigm, but those were the factors that they developed that schedule. And now let's look at you know, if we want to be more inclusive, we have to look at a schedule that accommodates everybody when the ships are alongside so that fathers and mothers can spend that 
uh, valuable time with their families. Right. So it, you you remind me of a uh, an anecdote that uh, an old colleague of mine told me one time about uh, how his uh, how his how his spouse cooked turkey for for a Thanksgiving dinner, and she would always take the legs off, and uh, you know and and he asked her, well, why do you do that? And she was like, well, it makes the turkey test taste better. And he's like, really? Why? She's like, I don't know. My mother always did it that way. And they asked mom and mom's like, well. My mother always did it that way. So they asked grandma and grandma was like, cause it wouldn't fit in the oven otherwise. <laughs> and, so, and so you come up with these sort of prescriptive requirements that really you're, to your 7am meeting have nothing to do with the job at hand. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, and, and, and you, 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 you look at it and, and there, you know, it, there, it, 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 you see these observations in many different routines that right. we have adapted. And when we find that it actually is creating a barrier right. to people wanting to continue serving, you really have to look, you know, is it because the legs don't fit in the pan or <laughs> is it because, you know, we really need to do this because if we're going to lose good people because of that, then it just doesn't make sense. Right. So, so, so I think there's been a lot of thought into these types of things. There, there's still a long way to go, and we will always have to be on that mission because we are always going to slip back, right? You know, and yeah. and I have to say, as women, I think sometimes we send confusing messaging too, right? Not to give the guys a way out, but <laughs> we we tend to, right? Um, so so I so I think that we have to be very very careful, and we have to consciously be aware that we have these preconceived ideas, and we have to question where they come from. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, so I'm going to back all the way up and, um, and, uh, and, and let's go back to RMC. And I'm wondering if there's something that you learned about yourself as you went through RMC um, that maybe you didn't know beforehand that sort of, you know, has sort of maybe even become a guiding uh, principle or, or, or um, you know, central to who you are uh, now. Ooh, what did I learn there? Um, well, I think that I have come in the last couple of years to accept the fact that I'm probably more personally driven and more disciplined than the average person in everything that I do. And um, I wonder whether sometimes RMC molded that into me mm-hmm. or whether that's something innate that I just can't escape, right? <laughs> um, and, and so I often ask myself, is, was it the RMC that put it into me or did the RMC amplify it? Amplify it, um, right. Yeah, and so, um, you know, but I think these are qualities that have allowed me to achieve um, all the goals that I've set out to do. Um, I've, I learned as well about myself, um, having been at RMC and then afterwards that sadly I'm not gifted with any particular identifiable traits or talents. I'd love to be a great athlete. I was a good athlete. I'd love to be a brilliant academic. I was a good student. I'd love to be a strategist, a strategist or a musician or an artist. And I can't do any of those, um, but I love people. I love hearing their stories. I love connecting. And I love understanding why human behavior does what it does. And 
I've always been fascinated by that. And I think that has kind of been my saving grace as I've moved um, forward and uh, ventured through my career. Um, I've been smart enough to set goals that I know I can achieve, Mm -hmm. Um, but I never pick the easy route. You know, I don't just run. I have to run marathons. Um, But, you know, it's it's one of those things that I think um, RMC had a part in it. Um, But I've realized now that I'll just never be one of those great gifted people. But as I think Des Linden said when she uh, became the first American uh, woman to win the Boston Marathon in, I think, over 30, 40 years, you just have to keep showing up. Right. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and that's what it boils down to. You know, you don't always get um, what you want, the job you want, the promotion possibly, um, prize positions, but um, it's staying disciplined and remain, remaining very committed um, to what you want to do, mm-hmm. and then the rewards will flow. It increases your chances. I think Wayne Gretzky said you miss 100% of the, of the goals, that, of the shots you don't take. And, 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 it's, and it's true. As long as you love what you're doing, then, you know, who cares whether you're promoted or rewarded in, in whatever fashion. Yeah, I think and that's, that's what I've always. Advice. Yeah. So the um, the notion of so the notion of goals is an interesting one. Um, you know, I you you've certainly had a very um, a varied career, um, but do you have a particular goal, uh, career or life goal that you're you're focused on right now? Um, no, actually, I would have to be my particular job. Uh, I mean, in as a as a judge, um, that is the epitome of um, the legal um, of a legal career. Um, and I absolutely um, love the opportunity to, um, I would say, um, I can't be mentoring them, but I, I love um seeing um, the lawyers appear before me, mm-hmm. arg- arguing their cases. And I also um, find the work absolutely fascinating. Um, and it's, it gets right back to understanding the people and the reasons why. And, you know, in many cases, we have really good people that have done extra, or not done bad things, but they may have exercised poor judgment in many of the right. cases. And, and I think coming at it with the experience um, that I have gained throughout the years and understanding the military environment and understanding the big picture that makes me extremely well placed to really enjoy what I'm doing. And um, when you're serving beyond 38 years, there's nothing to be gained by continuing uh, with it. Um, And so the reality of it is I'm doing it because I, I care about the organization um, I have, um, you know, a stepson and a whole load of nephews and uh, nieces that are all serving, um, and, uh, and a daughter-in-law. Um, so I care about the organization and I care a lot. And I think the true essence of independence is not really caring about whether you get promoted or whether you're getting your pension or what, um, you can make the appropriate decisions at the right time. Excellent. That's awesome. Um, so what about uh, for yourself? Uh, do you have something, you know, and you speak very, very passionately about being a judge. So so maybe maybe you already have answered it. But um, 
a career highlight for you? Um, well, I guess this would be the career highlight. Um, you know, I guess I was thinking about that today. Um, what was my career highlight? And I have to confess, I haven't had a job that I didn't love. It's, you know, I, I take that attitude to just awesome. love the job you got. Yes. Um, and, and be the best at it. And, and, you know, it was funny because I was talking to a young girl um, just the other day um, who got her first job and um, we were chatting about that. And I said, you know, my first job was at McDonald's making $2.15 an hour. And I was so proud and I was bound to be the best. And I won the best for cleaning the toilets. We called it the lot and lobby. And I, we, we won a, uh, an opportunity to go to a restaurant and, and I, you know, I wasn't from a well-to-do family. So to go to this restaurant and eat all I could um, was quite uh, a privilege. Um, but it doesn't matter what you do, you invest a certain amount of passion in it and you do it um, the best that you can. And so when I was thinking back over the job, I'm thinking like, I don't think there was a job that I didn't love. Um, you know, there was always time for change and there was reasons why changes were made, but it was never because I didn't like the job or I just couldn't do it anymore. Right. Um, there were always other circumstances that led, you know, either a posting in the military or in the case of coming back to the forces with the, um, the combination of my mom getting very sick in Ottawa and the fact that um, the office of the JAG was looking for a few people to help until they brought in more recruits lawyers okay well that's a that's a very positive attitude to have and I think uh, you know having you know that that notion of positivity um, is uh, is is important as well um, do you think that um, you know the different roles that you've taken uh, over over the years um, how what have been sort of the decision making that's gone into that? You know, when you you chose to to leave at one point to get back in. You know, those those are some some pretty big decisions. I know you mentioned before about you know your family um, and family circumstances, but are there some other things that have been sort of a central theme for you? Um, family has been the paramount um, decision making um, mechanism. Because without your career, uh, without your family, you really can't have a meaningful um, career. Um, I, I did struggle a bit when my kids were younger um, because it was tough, you know, trying to keep up with, you know, hockey practices and lacrosse practices and school homework and, you know, and, and I, you know, you're still working a long day and I used to feel like I was, you know, being stuffed through a Coke bottle, you know, mm-hmm. those those um, glass bottles and you can't get through the neck on the, 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 the Coke bottle. Um, and, and it was challenging. Um, but on the same token, um, I also enjoyed the work that I was doing. So it, it, it wasn't an easy um, decision. But what I didn't want, uh, I didn't want to um, have my kids grow up and go through the teen years and end up with problems. And, um, and then um, I, th- I think because I was in one of those groups of women that sort of were pioneering having kids and going through the forces, um, and my son wrote a, a speech on what it's like having parents in the military. 
and that kind of just hit me like right here um (laughs) yeah um and and you think like you get one chance of being a parent right? right you get one chance and the reality of it is is that um you don't want to screw that up um and I honestly think that my kids are better for the fact that I did um, serve. Um, they did appreciate and they did see me go to work. They understood a level of commitment. Um, and they've both grown up and uh, have become very successful professionals themselves with the same level of discipline um, that I tried to display, you know, uh, as, as a parent um, towards them. So. I think I did achieve that. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, you make decisions because you get good offers and it could get you at a vulnerable time. And then you think about it and think, well, you know, what is the best opportunity now for the family? And uh, I made that decision. And, and it was interesting, too, because three years later, when I made the decision to come back in, Uh, Of course, I had uh, the situation with my mom, who I was very close with, who uh, was terminal. And we only had so many, like six to eight months left. Um, And at at that time, because what happens on the civilian side, and and you could probably identify with this, is you don't necessarily get encouraged to take all your holidays. You know? (laughs) No. (laughs) No, you don't get encouraged. Like, you got five weeks. Make sure you're taking your leave. You know, you need this time. In fact, the more they can, some organizations can encourage you to keep working. That's all, it's all productivity. Um, So that is um, something that um, after I kind of went back Mm. for a little while as a reservist, my son said, Mom, I kind of like this. It's nice having to go on a holiday now. And I'm thinking, oh, God, here I thought I was helping. And here I was, you know, right. to some extent, you get caught up in the rat race on the civilian side, right? Yeah, Because, yeah. you know, you're volunteering, you're on committees, you're active. And the next thing you know, you know, the days are slipping by and you haven't had any time off as a family. So sure, you're all in one city. But if you can't really have that time to recharge, then it's a different story. Oh, that's that's a good point. I, I'm I'm fortunate to to work for a company that also requires us to take all of our vacations, so that's a good thing. <laughs> yes, absolutely. But yeah, no, that's that that's an interesting perspective, right? Because I think, um, you know, there are um, there are choices that we make, um, and it can be for a military career or a civilian career. Um, that, you know, where we have to look at what is the balance between, you know, the family versus the job. So um, I I think that does apply across industries. And it was absolutely fascinating, too, because in the three or four years in which I switched um, to be a reservist, the number of women uh, that were recruited and involved in the branch and, and active, I mean, I think the numbers just skyrocketed. So the actual recruiting changed and the numbers grew as well. So uh, it was quite, uh, it became quite a balanced uh, branch for sure. Oh, very interesting. So, so let me ask you as we, uh, as we're sort of uh, getting close to wrapping up here, uh, what kind of advice would you give to uh, younger women? Maybe, you know, some that are, are early in their careers, whether it be in the military or, or otherwise? 
Well, I would say that the journey ahead is long. Mm-hmm. It's going to it's going to be varied, and there's no set path, and you can't control the obstacles huh. or um, uh, the challenges that you're going to be presented. So you have to be a bit courageous, and this is one thing that has always always impressed me about women, and I personally feel that it's one of our strengths. Um, we do have um, a level of courageous conviction, and we're not afraid to make decisions um, when we feel that the time is right. Um, and I think that is something that we should take a lot of strength from. Um, but most importantly, we can't measure our success on a predetermined path that somebody else um, has set out um, because that's their version of what success is. And as we learn, we talked a little bit about uh, unconscious bias. And, you know, let's keep in mind that succession planning that was set up, you know, 20 and 30 years ago was developed by men. Um, And so um, that I'm sure it's been updated um, since since that time. And there have been uh, a lot of uh, very smart people looking into how to evolve it and to ensure that there is no... Um, systemic barriers that have been uh, included in it but we all have to be conscious of that and uh, but the 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 biggest point is is that um, the best career I think women can have is a career that is theirs that they take ownership of and that they're happy in um, because that's the real rich part of a career is having something that you love to do be passionate about um, and 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 go for it I think that's fantastic advice. Um, Well, I really want to thank you, Sandra, for joining us today. Um, So going forward, um, we are looking to create a a private Facebook group for the ex-cadet women um, where they can, um, you know, share advice and wisdom and possibly a dilemma or two. Uh, would you be interested in joining? And and if you are, um, I'll uh, it it will be at WMN Canada uh, on Facebook, and so um, we'd love for you to join us there and continue some of the conversation. Uh, that sounds like a wonderful opportunity, Amanda. Uh, I definitely will look into it and consider it. Um, I obviously have to be very careful. Yes. Um, but uh, you know. Uh, I'm now approaching 39 years service, so I'm not going to be serving forever. Um, so uh, my retirement plan is to uh, to be the best grandmother and mentor that exists on the planet um, in, a, in a nice way. So, um, so yeah, I mean, right now um, I may be somewhat limited. I'd have to look at the circumstances, um, but I would definitely be very interested in being part of any mentoring program. Awesome. Awesome. So we will be, um, the podcast will be available on uh, Apple, Google, and Spotify and all the places you normally get your podcasts. So um, I I look forward to uh, people being able to hear all about your story, Sandra. And yeah, we've been joined today by Commander Sandra Sookstor from the office of the Chief Military Judge. All right. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you.